0: Oh God, just simply, we want you to teach us what we don't know this morning. We want you to show us what we do not see. God, give us belief where faith is lacking. For the glory of your name and for Jesus' sake, amen. Well, if you're new with us uh, or you've just been coming for the last couple of weeks, we have been traveling through uh, the Gospel of John over the last couple of months. And we'll actually be in this book until the end uh, of this year And that is uh, somewhat of the normal preaching diet here at College Park Fishers. We just kind of pick a book and we go verse by verse. Uh, We let God's Word uh, kind of do the the talking and the changing. And uh, we just love sitting under His Word. And I just want to give you a quick overview of maybe where we've been and where we're headed uh, now that we're several weeks into uh, the Gospel of John. Well, John has um, described the first ministry circuit of Jesus in chapters 2 through 4. We've seen him go from Cana uh, to Jerusalem to Samaria, back to Cana, and he's uh, taking different stops along the way. And I want you to know that chapters 2 through 4 have been absolutely packed full of different encounters and different uh, healings, and that's very unusual for John. The pace is going to start to slow down as we turn the corner into chapter 5. In fact, chapter 5 introduces kind of this new section within John, chapters 5 through 12. Uh, John will actually lay out the remainder of Jesus' public ministry right before he's crucified. And uh, so this is a a big chunk of scripture. And one of the largest themes that we're going to see in chapters 5 through 12 is the escalating conflict between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. Now, Jesus has conflict with all kinds of people uh, over the next couple of chapters. He'll have conflict with his own disciples in uh, John chapter 6, some of the followers there. He'll have conflict with uh, some people in the crowd. Uh, But the conflict that he has with the most, the group of people are the Jewish religious leaders. And this will actually end up, uh, excuse me, leading to his death. Okay, now with that in mind, let's look at John chapter 5, where uh, the heat is turned up between him and the Pharisees here. And the first thing I want to point out is that this section includes the fourth miraculous sign that John records. Now, just by way of reminder, there are seven signs uh, that John records for us throughout the Gospel of John. And seven during this time for the Jewish people signified fulfillment or completion or perfection, thus signifying that Jesus has come to fulfill and even to replace the Old Covenant, and the Old Testament, bringing something new. And I just want to give you a snapshot of those seven signs as we walk through the book of John. And also remind you, these seven signs are not randomly selected. Okay, now, Surely uh, there were more than just seven healings that Jesus did. But John has specifically chosen each one of these seven signs in order to kind of shape how it is that we are to view Jesus And really, what are we to do with Jesus if we believe in him and if we follow him? Okay, And that's what this passage is all about. This fourth miraculous sign is going to teach us four things about Jesus that I'll point out as we move through uh, this section. So before we get to those four things about Jesus, um, let me just explain, number one, the Pool of Bethesda. What is the significance of uh, this pool? Well, in verse 1 of chapter 5, we learn that Jesus is now in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem because the text says there was a feast of the Jews. Now, we don't know what kind of feast it was. It could have been the Tabernacle Feast. It could have been uh, the Passover Feast. We're not sure exactly, but it doesn't really have a bearing on the meaning of this passage. But we do know that Jesus and along with hundreds, probably thousands of other Jews are traveling back to Jerusalem, kind of the center spot, in order to engage in worship and celebrate uh, whatever feast this was that the Jews were celebrating. Verse 2 tells us that this pool, this pool of Bethesda, was next to the Sheep Gate. Now, the Sheep Gate is where the sheep would travel through right before they were sacrificed um, at the temple. And the pool of Bethesda is just north of the temple. In fact, here's a picture of it, of what we would see today. And The pool of Bethesda was actually discovered in the 19th century under the ruins of a Byzantine church. And some of the archaeological evidence suggests that this is shaped like a trapezoid, and it was actually 180 feet wide and 315 feet long. Okay, so this is a big, big pool. Okay, this would be like, you know, kind of a party for the whole city uh, to come and, and, and to kind of swim in. But you'll notice there, there's kind of a southern section of the pool and a northern uh, section of the pool. The northern section was connected to a dam of water that would provide kind of uh, fresh water for the southern pool, kind of replenish, repurify it, because the southern pool was a ritual bath. The southern pool had these broad steps and these long landings, suggesting that it is a ritual bath, very similar to the Pool of Siloam in John chapter 9, where Jesus will heal the blind man. And what, what would happen at this southern section of the pool is that these Jews who are traveling from out of town, in order to prepare themselves to worship well in the temple, they had to perform some ceremonial washing. They had to kind of clean themselves, and so they would go to this pool here uh, in order to do so. So you can imagine that this pool is packed full of all kinds of Jews from out of town. The city is buzzing, getting ready to celebrate and remember all that God has done for them. But not only are there a ton of Jews at the southern section of this pool, but if you look at verse 3, John tells us that there is a large multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, disabled individuals who are also there. You're probably wondering, why is there such a large number of invalids who are there at the southern pool? Well, the answer to that is found in verse 4. If you go to verse 4, you probably don't have verse 4 in your Bibles unless you have a King James uh, Version. The reason why you don't have a verse 4 is that that verse 4 has been footnoted because a copyist of God's Word came along and kind of scribbled in the margin his own commentary of what was going on in this passage in order to kind of help uh, kind of set the context. But verse 4 is not part of the inspired Word of God by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's why it's been footnoted there at the bottom. However, it is very helpful to kind of, understand what's going on in this scene, not only to help answer why there are so many individuals who need healing, but it also helps understand verse 7. If you go to verse 7 there, you have this individual who needs healing uh, responding to Jesus's question, do you want to be healed? And He says, sir, talking to Jesus, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Okay, so it seems like There are only a few people or one person that can get healed when the water is stirred up. And if you're too slow, you miss out. Okay, that was kind of the superstition during this time period that this copyist added into the margins in order to kind of help understand what's going on. Okay, so if you look at that footnote, or if you have the King James Version, uh, which I doubt anybody in this room might have. You look at verse 4, it says, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Okay? Again, not part of the inspired uh, Holy Spirit scriptures, but it is kind of helpful, perhaps, if it's true, to kind of give us an understanding of what was taking place during this time period. You have people who believed that the water there in the pool could actually heal them. Now, I'm not trying to distract us this morning. This, the main message of this text is not how did the pool work. The main message of this text is that Jesus works and that Jesus has power in order to heal us. But the fact remains that there were a lot of people um, here at this pool So I just want you to kind of picture this scene for a moment. You've got probably hundreds of invalids who are there needing healing. You've got all these Jews that are there trying to perform the ritual cleansing in order to worship well. And then you get to verses 5 and 6, and something kind of out of the ordinary, I would say, takes place in regards to what Jesus does. In verses 5 and 6, this is not what I would have done if I were Jesus. This is not maybe what you would expect. If you've got all of these people who need healing, if I were Jesus at this time, I'd be standing up on a rock, and I would say, hey, I've got an announcement to make. I'm Jesus. I'm the Son of God. I've got an unlimited amount of power, and I'm just going to go one by one, and I'm going to touch and heal every single one of you. Wouldn't that be cool to do that around this feast in order to celebrate God's uh, great goodness to us? Like, that's probably what I would do if I were Jesus, and yet that's not what Jesus does in verses 5 and 6. Jesus, even though there are hundreds of people who need healing, selects one individual, probably the most helpless and hopeless person in this entire pool, and has this interaction that leads to him being healed. This person is probably the senior beggar out of the group. The, The average lifespan during this time was around 40 and so the fact that he had this, uh, this disability or this disease for 38 years made him one of the oldest people here uh, at the pool. Now, this guy is a really interesting character. Like, there's some details in this passage that, that John includes that doesn't really lead us to having a ton of compassion for him. Like, this person was probably difficult to love and difficult to maybe show compassion towards. If you notice in this scene, John includes that this guy is a complainer. Verse 7, he kind of complains that there's nobody to help him get into the pool. We also see that he's a blamer. He blamed the one that healed him when the Pharisees asked him why he was breaking the Sabbath. He says, the one that healed me kind of told me to do this. He's also ungrateful. He's borderline disloyal. He uh, interacts with Jesus later on in the temple, doesn't thank Jesus, and in fact, um, kind of throws Jesus under the bus and reports him to the religious leaders. He kind of tattles on Jesus. Now, this guy, again, is not someone that you'd have a ton of compassion for. And thinking through this, I'm like, well, why would John kind of highlight and select this miraculous sign if he's trying to get us to believe in Jesus? Well, I think the reason for that is we're, we're kind of getting to know this guy, not being filled with a lot of compassion so that we might be blown away at Jesus's compassion for this guy. That despite the fact that he's a complainer and a blamer and disloyal and ungrateful, Jesus still heals them because that's the kind of God that we have. That's the kind of Jesus that we have is that he seeks out the least of these, the person who doesn't deserve anything, and lavishes grace upon him. And we see all kinds of things about Jesus in this passage. So let me just point out four things that we learn about Jesus as he interacts with this helpless and hopeless individual. We're going to learn about the compassionate healer here. Here's the first one uh, I want to point out, is that Jesus shows compassion. Jesus shows compassion. You know, Jesus chose to go to this pool. didn't have to. And yet he didn't kind of stumble upon this pool, but he deliberately goes there for a specific reason. And we saw this in John chapter four, where Jesus was passing through Samaria and he has this interaction with that woman at the well. The text says in verse four of chapter four that he had to go through Samaria. And geographically, like that's true. He had to pass through in order to get to Canaan, Jerusalem, but he also had to have that conversation with that woman. It's like Jesus has these these divine appointments, over and over and over again because Jesus moves toward need, not self-sufficiency. Jesus moves towards the broken-hearted sinners, not towards the self-righteous. See, one of the first things that John tells us about Jesus in this passage comes in verse 6, where John tells us that Jesus saw the man lying there. You don't, don't miss that. Don't run over that too quickly. Jesus sees brokenness and moves towards people who are in need. People who are desperate for healing. He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't explain it away. He's not too busy, but he steps down into their situation, leans into brokenness, and provides healing. I think that this is a picture of God's compassion towards humanity. Look, I know that we want to uh, strike the balance between how we view God. We don't want to view him as this cosmic genie who, if we, you know, rub the lamp of faith, he's going to give us whatever we want. And yet this passage is a phenomenal reminder of God's compassion and his care and his love towards us, that he sees your brokenness, he notices it, and he leans in towards it. And I, I love this about Jesus. He sympathizes and he lavishes this grace. I I want to do just a quick exercise just for a moment. I want you to just pause for a moment, and I want you to think about that thing in your life that's causing pain or fear or anxiety or disappointment or confusion, whatever it is in your life. I just want you to stop and think about that. And, And I want you to answer the question in your mind, what is God's disposition towards you and that thing in your life right now? How does God feel about that issue, that brokenness, that, that whatever that thing is that's causing fear and all those other things? What does God think about that? Like I wonder this morning if some of us think that God's annoyed at us because of that thing in our life, or God's frustrated, or God's disappointed. I wonder if we think that God feels distant, like he's forgotten about that issue in our lives, or he can't relate. He's God. He doesn't know what this is like. This is outside of his control. I wonder what God's disposition is towards the issues in our life. I wonder what this invalid thought about God. 38 years, day in, day out, still with that issue, wondering, has God forgotten about me? Does God God still care about me? What am I to do now with this issue? God feels so distant. And look, it's so easy to allow the circumstances of our lives to shape how we view God instead of what God's word has to say. It's so easy to go through something in life and and to feel whatever it is that we feel and to project that upon God. And God must think this about me. And it may not be what scripture has to say. And so I just want to point out just a couple of passages about God's compassion and God's care for his people. And as I read these verses, I want you just to think that this is exactly what Jesus embodied as he interacted with this invalid in John chapter 5. Okay, just just listen to these verses here. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Psalm 147.3 says God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Isaiah 49.13 says sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Zephaniah three verse seventeen says the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness, he will quiet you by his love, and he will exalt over you with loud singing. Isaiah 49 verses 15 and 16 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I, God, will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Look, that is what God's word has to say about his compassion and his disposition towards his people, no matter what you are going through. Even throughout the Gospels, there are nine different occurrences where it talks about Jesus was moved with compassion. He was moved towards people's sorrow. That's the God that we have. And so I just want to encourage us that as we go through all kinds of things in life, all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of struggles, don't allow those circumstances to dictate who God is and what he's like. Come to the word of God to shape that and to therefore determine how you're going to respond to it. So Jesus shows compassion. Here's the second thing that I want to point out about Jesus from this fourth miraculous sign is that Jesus targets the heart of this individual. I love the way that Jesus demonstrates uh, his compassion in this conversation. He um, says some really interesting things. You look at verse 6. What an interesting question to ask an invalid of 38 years. He says, do you want to be healed? I read that the first time. I'm like, I don't want to be disrespectful, but that kind of seems like an obvious question. Like, I wonder what this person actually thought when he was asked that question, do you want to be healed? It forces us to ask, like, what, what is going on here? Like, like what's, what's behind this question? Because we've already seen all these different encounters that Jesus has had with people. There's always something behind and underneath the questions that Jesus asks. That Jesus has a way of exposing the deep things beneath the surface by asking heart-level specific questions. And so what I think that Jesus is doing here is he is establishing the fact that the first step towards wholeness and healing is having a deep desire for it. If you notice here, Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? He doesn't say, do you hate your illness? He doesn't say, is your illness an inconvenience? Is this a weakness in your life? No, no, no. He says, do you want to be healed, implying, do you want to be healed above all else? Do you want to be healed no matter the cost? Because there is a cost with healing and with freedom. If if you've ever had an issue or a struggle or some sort of brokenness in your life for any uh, amount of time, you understand that the thought of being freed from that or find healing from that is almost just as scary as living in the struggle because now you're wrestling with your identity. If you've always had this particular issue or struggle, or if this thing has brought you uh, security or satisfaction, the thought of of moving away from that into something unknown can be quite daunting. So this question here, do you want to be healed? Is Jesus forcing this individual to face the consequences of what true freedom is all about? Remember, this guy has been an invalid for 38 years. I'm I'm wondering if he thought, okay, I, I do want to be healed, but... Who am I if I'm healed? Like, what am I going to do with my life? I I made my living off begging. I got to get a job. I have to start obeying the law, the Old Testament law now that I'm not an invalid. Like, what does that life look like? And so this question is targeting the heart of this individual. And even when you get to verse 10 and he is healed, his life gets remarkably more difficult than before he was healed. Right when he's healed, he has this, this run-in with the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders. They say, hey, 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 wh- why are you carrying that mat on the Sabbath? You're not allowed to do that. You're, you're working on the Sabbath. That's against the law. And he's thinking, oh, man, now I've got to follow the law. I've got these expectations to live up to. And then he responds, well, the one that healed me told me to do this. And they're like, well, who's, who's the one that healed you? And so now he's right in the middle of the crossfire and this conflict between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders, and I just wonder if he thought to himself, you know, life back on that mat was easier. Like, that was safer. That was simpler. There, there is a cost to finding healing and to being free. During this time in the first century, if you were a beggar, you actually made a decent living. Especially in Jerusalem, all these feasts that come in, all of these Jews from out of the town were extra motivated to give alms to the poor. And so, this guy, if he gets healed, he's, he's kind of out of a job. He's out of a way uh, to make a living. So, there's a, a real sense of cost here for this individual. On a superficial level, this reminds me of growing up in the Beals family. It was almost wonderful to be sick. Like when you were sick, you had to skip school didn't have to do the chores. You had unlimited amount of TV to watch and Gatorade and sympathy. And so you have people who are like, oh, I hope you get better soon. And it's like, ah, I'm not really motivated to get better. Like, this life is pretty good if I can, you know, you know, you know deal with the sickness here. And it's like, I'd have to give up all of those things if I were healed. That is exactly what's going on in this situation and what is behind Jesus's question both to the invalid And Jesus' question to us. See, Jesus asks us the same question. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to find freedom from the struggles in your life? Understand that there is a cost behind it because of that life without that struggle. That Jesus seems to be asking this question because he's well aware of some of the struggles that we go through. Uh, sometimes provide a benefit or pleasure or an identity that we're not always willing to give up if we were actually healed. I think C.S. Lewis puts it really well in just one sentence. He says that a familiar captivity is frequently more desirable than an unfamiliar freedom. And look, that's, we don't talk a lot about this when we're living in sin or dealing with an issue in our lives, but that's somewhat what we face, it's the unfamiliar life of being free and wrestling with that identity away from the pleasure of whatever it is that's providing. Do you want to be healed? What area of your life does that question apply to today? I wonder what kinds of things are coming to your mind. I know for me, I've got A lot of things that I want to be healed from, a lot of things that I want to get well, that I want to get better, I want to improve, but understand that there's a cost to getting better, to getting healed. You think about maybe an unhealthy marriage, thinking, I really want this marriage to to improve, to get better. Well, it's going to come at the cost of not focusing on yourself all the time and starting to focus on your spouse and serving him or her. Like, do you want to be healed? Do you want to find freedom from sin? It's going to come at the cost of giving up the pleasures of sin. Do you want to find healing? And do you want to get better with your anxiety and with your worry? It's going to come at the cost of giving up the control of worry. See, there's all kinds of sacrifices that need to be made. There's a cost to finding healing. And I think this is what is behind Jesus' question as he targets the hearts. Do you want Jesus above all else? So he targets the heart. Third thing I want to point out here about what we learn about Jesus in this miraculous sign is that he demonstrates immediate power. This is probably the obvious one as you're thinking about Jesus healing. He's got um, power here. And the man in verse 7 responds to Jesus's question and doesn't really answer the question if you notice. He kind of kind of states the reason why he hasn't been healed yet. And I think at this point in the conversation, this man has no idea who is standing next to him, no idea that the man who created everything out of nothing is standing right there. Well, Jesus quickly changes that. Verses 8 and 9, he says to the man, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. We see the immediacy of Jesus' power. That the words there, at once, it signifies that that Jesus has this unlimited amount, amount of power, that he can do anything at any moment. That when he speaks, diseased muscles and bones obey, and they obey at once. Look, I think John is writing this in a way where we are to exult in the power of Jesus, that there is nothing too hard for him. It's kind of like last week when we saw how Jesus healed the nobleman's son 20 miles away and he just spoke it and it happened in that moment. That we're to read this and to be enamored with the sovereign immediacy of Jesus' power, that there's nothing too hard for Jesus. That Jesus heals us in ways that only he can and in places of our lives that he can only reach. It's only Jesus who heals and yet this scene here is, is really interesting. The juxtaposition between the son of God who's there, who can heal at any moment, and then you've got all of these individuals who need healing, and yet what are they doing? They're staring at the pool of Bethesda. They're staring at the water, thinking that that water is going to heal them. And, and, I, and I saw that picture in my mind, and I'm wondering, Man, like we could, we could judge them for that, that the Son of God's right there, just turn to him and look and believe. And yet, in what ways do we do something similar in our own lives? Like, like what, just by way of application, what is the pool of Bethesda in your life? What is it that you look at that you're trying to find healing, satisfaction, purpose, hope And yet you've got Jesus who is standing right next to you, who has an unlimited amount of power, who is willing to heal you and to provide for you what things he can only provide. Look, we struggle in the same way, where it can even be, it can be sinful things in our lives that we look to, to find all of those things, or it can even be good things It can be a marriage, it can be children, it can be a career, it can be financial stability, it can be a a type of relationship or a certain body image that you're going after. We can elevate good things above Jesus and fall into the same trap where the pool of Bethesda in our life could even be these gifts that God has given that we've elevated above Jesus. So just by way of application today, what is your Bethesda pool that you need to turn away from And look at the matchless power of Jesus where he can bring exactly what your soul is craving and in ways that he can only bring. Jesus has immediate power. Here's the last thing I'll point out. Number four is that Jesus seeks holistic transformation. You get to the point in the story where he heals this person. Something bizarre happens. Jesus almost disappears. (laughs) Like, this guy doesn't even know the name of Jesus. He doesn't even know who healed him. And you get to that point in the story, and you almost wonder, like, does Jesus care about this person's soul? Does he only care about his physical body? Like, is he going to come back and, you know, lead him into faith? Well, Jesus eventually does come back in verse 14, where Jesus finds the man in the temple and says to him, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Okay, so Jesus has no intention of walking away from this man without also healing his soul, because Jesus is after holistic transformation, that he doesn't just give us what we want, but he gives us what we need. One commentary put this about uh, this statement by Jesus, sin no more, stop sinning, Jesus' aim is to heal his body, but also to heal his soul. Jesus is saying, I have given you a gift. It's free. It came first before my command. You didn't earn it. You weren't good enough for it. I chose you freely, and I healed you. Now live in this power. Let the gift of healing, the gift of my free grace, grace, be a means to your holiness. Look, I think this verse is, is a powerful verse because Jesus is warning this person, look, I've healed you, don't waste it, don't live in sin, don't allow sin to define you because if you do, something worse may happen and I take that to mean eternal punishment if you continue to pursue sin away from the things of God and so this is a warning to this individual that Jesus is after this holistic approach to actually allowing us to live in the power That he has provided. And look, in the same way that Jesus healed this individual of whatever disease that he had, told him to sin no more, look, Jesus tells us the same thing. Jesus has provided the ultimate healing through the cross, through his resurrection, that Jesus died on the cross to take away the punishment of our sins so that he can provide the ultimate healing and the ultimate uh, gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sin. And if you receive that by faith, guess what Jesus says to you? He says, sin no more. Don't waste that gift of healing. Don't waste this free gift of eternal life. Pursue a godly life. Pursue the things that God wants you to pursue. Because why? Because Jesus is after holistic transformation. So we see so much about Jesus in, in this fourth miraculous sign. We see Jesus and his compassion. We see the fact that he's concerned about the heart, that he's, he's his immense amount of power. He wants to transform us. But I think the way that John writes this, and this is something that we're going to continue to see throughout this book, John wants us to see and behold something about Jesus in order to change us. Like he wants us to see these things so that we would walk away changed and transformed because that's the power of Scripture. Like he's laying out for us how it is that we are to have a relationship with God. That we come to the Scriptures and we learn something about God. His compassion, his power, his immediacy. And we, we talk to him about that. We, we say, wow, God, you're amazing. Your compassion, your power. And we start to interact with God based on what we see in God's Word. That's what having a relationship with God is all about. It's rooted upon the power of God's unchanging word, not based on our feelings, not based on what culture has to say, but it's based on the word of God. And look, this man here who's healed, if you notice what he did, he kind of had this three-step process. He heard the words of Jesus, he looked at Jesus, and he obeyed. And that is a template for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We hear the words of of Christ. We look up at God, not at our circumstances, not at what we feel. We keep our focus on God and we obey what he has in store for us. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your heart for humanity. God, we thank you for the way that you love us so well, the way that you care for us. God, you know the difficulties of life full well. God, you know the struggles that we wrestle with, the issues that we have. So, God, thank you that we have a God who is for us and not against us. We thank you, God, that you look upon the issues of our life and and there's not a distance there, but you are present, that you are near to the brokenhearted. And, God, I pray that we would lean in towards your power and not uh, not towards all the other temptations in our lives. God, we want to be people who are walking godly lives because you've given us this free gift of eternal life, and we need your help for it. So we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.